This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. It's the sooner than you think issue. Carol, I love this because it's looking around the corner in a way, but just around the corner, these are really cool things that are happening all over the world. Exactly. And going to impact us big time in the future. From healthcare to artificial intelligence, we take a look at how technology is disrupting everyday life. So getting your arms around what really is sooner than you think, right? not an easy task. And it fell to Jeff Muskus. He's the editor of the technology section. He's here with us. So give us a sense of how you even begin to do this. Sure. Well, last year we were looking at uh, the, the incredible moment that we were seeing um, coming about for AI. This year, you know, in the midst of uh, you know a sort of backlash against the you know sort of conventional big tech industry that's certainly heating up this yeah. week, especially, um, we wanted to look at uh, you know what new models of, of innovation and, and technological progress can really look like. And one of the ways into this, it's so brilliant, is that you use one of our best assets, Ashley Vance. <laughs> Hello, world. He's been all over the planet, literally looking at these pockets of innovation and the comparisons that he makes to what he's seeing around the world versus what he's seen and you've seen for so many years in Silicon Valley are pretty stark. Help us understand that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the th- this is really in in Ashley's wheelhouse. It's the story he's kind of been been telling in ways big and small for the better part of a decade now. As as um, you know, the the uh, was said in uh, one of his stories a few years ago. You know, it was the the finest minds of my generation are figuring out how to get people to click on ads. Um, <laughs> you know, this has uh, uh, been the story of Silicon Valley for most of the past uh, you know decade and a half, really, which is uh, you know several lifetimes in Valley years, but. Um, Ashley Ashley's uh, travels around the world have taken him to places that uh, have reminded him of the the valley of uh, of generations past, and um, reminded him that uh, innovation can can come in in all forms, whether it's in uh, Australia or, or China or Chile or Palestine or elsewhere around the world. Well, Jeff, let's talk about the Silicon Valley of past, um, and let's get into what he means specifically by that, uh, and then we can talk about kind of where we are today. So he's talking about when hobbyists were involved, builders were involved. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Yeah, he harkens back first to, uh, you know, the, the Silicon Valley of um, Bill Hewlett and Dave Packer's yeah. era when, uh, you know, people were, were really experimenting in a, in a pre, uh, you know, computerized era with uh, what uh, um, electrification and, and, and the growth of an electronics industry could do for the country. Uh, and people were, were, you know, as, as Ashley puts it, really trying to, uh, to tinker and invent their way to a better future as opposing as opposed to sort of uh, trying to optimize it for you know quarterly shareholder meetings well and and what changed i mean in in your estimation and based on ashley's reporting where did that pivot happen because as he says you know the finest minds of his generation of our, all of our generations you know are now focused on on something very different even different from the 90s what happened Sure. Well, yeah, as as, um, as Ashley points out in the piece, you know, there's a, a wave of innovation that sort of crests with and, and nonetheless sort of changes after, you know, Netscape right. and, and then the dot-com crash. 1995, but, it sort of all becomes apparent what the Internet 
at least the potential is going to be. And then we take some hard left turns, it feels like. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, as, whereas uh, I think a lot of people would say, would look at the, the current slate of um, Silicon Valley uh, tech giants and say, well, f- you know, Facebook's the, the flagship problem, you know, the biggest arbiter of, of um, the kinds of ad models that, uh, you know, we, we see reason to be worried about here. Actually blames Google and says yeah. that, uh, you know, the, the search giant more or less um, inventing, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the modern industry of accumulating as much data as possible about people to try and uh, generate more and more uh, advertising and ad dollars is, is really where um, you know the, the industry started to lose its way. There's a line in this story that Ashley wrote that just struck me. I actually talked about it with my da- daughter, um, and he, he says the whole goal now is to pull people out of the real world and into an invented one. And I think that's fascinating, right? Because everybody's just spending time on their phones or their computers or what have you, just playing in this fake world, right? Rather than out kind of exploring the world. Right. Everything's everything's gamified. So you're, you're right. You're not you're not trying to solve uh, problems in the real world as much as you're trying to solve, you know, uh, uh, the maze, you know, the invented challenges of um, a, a more artificial era. And and yeah, the the. Uh, the models of innovation that he's hearkening back to here and that we've tried to explore in this package are um, really more uh, uh, leaping out of the physical world. So let's talk about, though, he said he's kind of not giving up hope, right? So let's talk about the places around the world where he said, okay, there are people who are building things, looking to make things even better, more ideal in our world. Absolutely. It's a, it's a long list. Um, you know, the the, uh, the piece starts in uh, in Palestine a couple of years ago at a, a tech conference that brought, uh, you know, entrepreneurs from throughout the Middle at least to uh, pitch in some cases were already pretty regionally famous startups and in some cases have have taken off since then um, but uh, Ashley's also traveled to New Zealand to see emerging you know rocket and cube satellite companies and uh, you know uh, China to see uh, the the drone king of the world and and uh, the, the drone masters challenge um, and uh, and to Canada to meet uh, you know the modern godfathers of AI and and many other places that's Jeff Muskus. He was the architect of this entire issue. I was really glad we got a mm-hmm. chance to catch up with him. And Ashley Vance, he was traveling, so we couldn't catch up with him. But I tell you, his words, the ideas that he puts out there, so thought-provoking. I think it was dinner fodder for uh, both of our families. Right. Sparked so many different conversations back at home. So more than $2 billion of the world's population goes without safe drinking water. A possible solution, go figure, I would have never thought of this, towing icebergs. This is definitely the, wait, what? Wait, what? Story uh, that <laughs> totally. we both read in the magazine this week. Uh, Carolina Winter joins us from Boston. Some great reporting, really in-depth reporting here. Carolina, take us to the icebergs. Okay, well, um, the idea of towing icebergs and converting them into drinking water is actually not that new of an idea, but um, this story was really fun because it focuses on um, a marine salvage expert named Nicholas Sloan, who is the sort of guy whose career involves, you know, rappelling onto burning super tankers and cleaning up oil spills in remote waters and and uh, he, he, for those of you who, who remember, the, he refloated the Costa Concordia, which was that right. infamous right. Italian yeah. cruise ship that, that sank off the coast of Tuscany. So he, um, he is from, uh, he lives in Cape Town and um, has been experiencing the droughts there. Um, there's been a number of, uh, of uh, successive drought seasons. And it culminated, of course, last year with um, what they called day zero when the government said uh, Cape Town was, with 
within months of potentially running out of drinking water uh, or muni municipal water in general and really cut down the, um, the water rates. And so he began thinking about using his unusual skill set for um, doing what other people have talked about for a long time, which is towing icebergs from Antarctica close enough so that the water can be harvested and brought well, to the people of Cape Town. Caroline, let's talk about this, because it's not the first time people have, have thought about this or worked on it, money spent on this, but exactly, you know, what kind of iceberg are we talking about? How big and how do you actually physically do that? Right. Um, well, it's a that's a long story, <laughs> but um, it's uh, so he's he's looking to get a, an iceberg that's about 125 million tons, and the dimensions would be uh, about a thousand meters by 500 by. 250, and um, it would be an Antarctic iceberg. The icebergs in Antarctica are, are typically much, much bigger than the Arctic icebergs, and they tend to be um, tabular because they break off of this, the, um, the Antarctic landmass, mm -hmm. and that makes them more stable and easier to tow. And so the idea would be to pick up one of these icebergs about that's already traveled about halfway to South uh, South Africa, um, and uh, they would, you know, they would need to use satellites to locate the ideal iceberg, and then use radar and sonar to make sure that it is structurally sound and less likely to break apart on one of these toes. And then they want to surround it with a giant net, basically, with, with two super tankers pulling right. it and then two tugboats pulling the super tankers. And it's it's all a detailed process that you'll have to read about in the magazine, but, um, but they think they can do it. Yeah. So Carolina, talk to us about the other ways that this drinking water problem could be solved, because I think we read a story like this and, and and hear your description and think, wow, that seems quite cumbersome. Surely there must be a, a better way. There doesn't seem to be, but what, but what are the other alternatives? Desalinization, well, I know, is one, right? Yeah, a desalination is, is one that's being used more and more throughout the world. And desalination, I think a lot of people think that's um, an easy fix for um, for our running out of fresh water, but it is uh, extremely energy intensive, mm. expensive, and produces a lot of pollution. Scientists are, of course, working on improving the process, but right now the UN says that they are producing um, typically a kind of sludge that is filled with toxic chemicals and is extra salty, and this mm. is very dense, and it kind of is a lot, most of it gets fed back into the ocean, and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean and just sucks the oxygen out and creates these deserts, just killing everything. So it's not a great option. Already, um, the desalination plants throughout the world are producing enough of this stuff to cover Florida in a foot of the well, uh, of, of gunk every year. Right. Um, and, that's so that's, and that's what's worrisome, yeah. right? Because it produces more of that polluted brine, uh, as you exactly. point out, than it does actually drinkable water. What I found fascinating about this story, among there being iceberg cowboys and all these different things going on, is that it's been going on for decades. The Rand Corporation was looking into it, Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's not mm -hmm. necessarily a new thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so there has been money put towards this. And even you talk about uh, Captain Sloan, he's got some financial backing to make this happen. Mm -hmm. 
He does. That's one of the things that's really mind blowing about this is that、mm. there are financial backers who are ready to take on all the risk for this this pioneer tow, which is supposed to cost more than two hundred million dollars. And、um, they,、uh, the the idea that's new is.、Um, Uh, first of all, there's a lot.、Um, scientists have found out a lot more about ocean currents and also about、mm-hmm. icebergs, and satellite technology has improved.、Um, and so they're hoping that they will be able to just drift with the currents and basically use them to travel at about one mile per hour. Over a period of 80 or 90 days, in order to just kind of guide this this、uh, iceberg close enough that it can be then moored, and the water can be harvested. And so, primarily, you know,、mm. Sloan is most interested in essentially solving the problem right there on his own continent. It's not just limited to to Cape Town. This is a a continent wide, or certainly there are other pockets of Africa where this is a big issue. Is this something that could be a global effort ultimately? I mean, who knows? Who knows if this will even work until it's, someone does it?、Um, there are a lot of questions. But、uh, Cape Town is, of course, in an ideal、um, location for a pioneer tow. Other places that they've talked about is are Perth, Australia, and、um, Chile. But、um, but Sloan thinks that if this could work, they could potentially take an iceberg further up the、right. western coast of Africa and and. Get it to other and, countries as well, and let's not forget there's kind of a commercial element to this too, right? Iceberg vodka,、uh, berg water, because because the water is incredibly pure that comes off right. an iceberg. Well, That's the other advantage over desalination. Is desalinated water apparently tastes terrible, and iceberg water is extremely pure.、Um, and and that's why small companies have been using it to distill things like vodka and make beer, and even just sell bottled iceberg water for a long time. That's Carolita Winter. Fascinating story. We're talking about so many people, two billion of the world's population, that goes without safe drinking water. Imagine if we can really harness those icebergs up in Antarctica and change their situations. Definitely. The- Wait, what? Story of the week. <laughs> Sooner than you think, healthcare style takes us to the land of once incurable diseases that could be curable. It seems James Patton joins us from London. He's covered this issue extensively. So, James, take us inside what's going on with gene therapy. Well,、uh, it's a very interesting time. We are entering、uh, a new frontier in medicine. The science is accelerating、uh, rapidly, and the field of therapies that uh, replace uh, missing or malfunctioning genes is really at a turning point. After many years of struggles and、uh, setbacks, and we're talking about treatments that are intended to be given to patients a single time, and potentially deliver a lifetime of benefits,、uh, a possible cure in some cases.、Uh, now, there's uncertainty over the long term whether these benefits are going to be sustained, whether patients will need to be treated again at some point down the track,、uh, whether they will encounter any side effects. We don't have. Full answers to all of these questions, although the data over the past five years or so has been dramatic.、Uh, and now, for healthcare systems, for、uh, 
payers around the world, governments and insurers, they're all wrestling with how they're going to pay for these right. treatments that you know, could be multi-million dollar uh, drugs. And even if they you know, save money over the long term, over the shorter term, they're going to have a significant budget impact when you consider the uh, sheer number of gene therapies that's approaching the market and the, and the costs. So James, I want to get into the costs in a minute, but first help me understand how this works. So you said this is a one-time thing. So does it replace drugs going down the line? That is the that is the goal. So you know, my colleague Michelle Cortez talked to uh, the mother of a patient, uh, for example, with a, a rare genetic condition called SCID, better known as Bubble Boy disease. Uh, and now this is a rare condition that um, basically leaves newborns uh, extremely vulnerable to infection. They uh, have to live in isolation. Uh, frequently, uh, you know, kills um, kids before they turn two years old. You know, in other cases, these gene therapies uh, require, you know, are replacing uh, a lifetime of costly care. So uh, there was a product just approved by the FDA within the past couple of weeks called Zolgensma uh, from the Swiss pharmaceutical company Novartis. Uh, and this is to treat a lethal childhood disease called spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, and so that's the goal. That's exactly right um, over time. Um, but again, uh, there are those long-term uncertainties that, uh, that still need to be still need to be resolved. Right. So let's talk about those costs, because as you say, multi-millions of dollars, potentially. Dumb question. Why does it cost so much? Right. Well, the, you know, if you consider the, uh, the cost to treat some of these conditions, like hemophilia, for instance, the standard treatments uh, can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, uh, upward of a million dollars a year. Uh, these gene therapies are obviously very expensive to develop over uh, a long period of time. The pharmaceutical companies obviously are trying to recoup their investments uh, and charge what the market will bear, but right. they obviously are under a great deal of pressure to price these at responsible levels. Uh, obviously, the drug price controversy uh, in the U.S. Is, is well underway, and this will only uh, add to the debate. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like drug pricing is top of mind, not just for the companies, but you hear the president of the United States talking about it pretty frequently. You hear members of Congress talking about it. Does that have the potential to derail or slow some of this down because there is so much heat around this right now? Definitely. I mean, I think the people we talk to point out that if the healthcare system can't get the balance right here, that, you know, one of the, uh, the experts we talk to, the head of ICER, the nonprofit that evaluates the cost effectiveness of, of drugs, said it's, it's akin to a freight train uh, potentially hitting a brick wall, that that scenario could unfold uh, if we don't get this right. Uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies obviously uh, say that if prices aren't high enough, it could uh, stifle investment and discourage uh, innovation and restrict access to these new technologies down the road. So uh, it's a very tricky uh, balancing act. And obviously, the companies right now, uh, you know, we're talking about novel technologies and uh, cutting edge drugs, and the companies are getting creative uh, in how they charge for them. They are uh, coming up with novel ways to uh, try to make these costs uh, easier to digest. Uh, they are linking the payments, in some cases, to the performance uh, right. of the drugs. 
so if a treatment doesn't deliver, if a patient dies or it fails in another way, then they're, uh, they, you know, they're proposing to give some of the money back. But there are a lot of hurdles that need to be overcome uh, before uh, a lot of these novel uh, payment models can be implemented. And that's James Patton Carroll. He's been following this whole gene therapy evolution, the debates around it, the pricing issues. It's complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. It could change the way we all get healthcare in the future. But right, there's several steps we got to go through to get there. So June, this particular June 2019, is an important one. Why, you might ask? Well, it marks the 10th anniversary of what might become the longest expansion on record. They grow up so fast. Happy birthday <laughs> so to fast. the longest expansion on record. Peter Coy with us. He's celebrating in a very Peter Coy way. Nice hat, but not singing. Why not? First of all, we're worried that it's going to end any time now. This month marks the 10th birthday, which equals the longest expansion in records going back to 1854. Tied, by the way, with 1991 to 2001. If it goes one more month into July, it will become the record holder. So, you know, you would think, you know, streamers, parties, cakes. Yeah. So there, there are two reasons people are not celebrating. One is that we're worried that this, you know, is nearing its end, uh, that actually we could be heading towards a recession. And you see that, for example, in the bond market with the inversion of the yield curve that we're talking about all the time, where the three-month Treasury yields are mm -hmm. higher than the 10-year Treasury yields, which is often a sign Recession is on the way. And the reason that's a sign is that people don't have long-term confidence, and right. so they're buying in shorter duration, right? Yeah, uh, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's really more that the uh, fear of growth is going to be low right. in the long term. Inflation and growth will be low over the long term. Meanwhile, the rates that the Fed imposes, which Fed controls the short end of the yield curve, are rather high and maybe choking off growth. So the shorter end is higher, the yeah. longer end is lower, which is not typically how right, it should be. Typically, you want a higher yield for a longer duration, right? Right, if you're to buy compensate you for the risk right. of uh, losses Holding over that longer. period of time. So um, that's one thing. And then we have the trade war, which uh, was with China, and now it's uh, seemed to be breaking out with Mexico. We also have worries about Japan and Europe. Um, and so the, the growth is still healthy, but there's a worry that it's going to end. So help us understand Larry Summers in, in this context, because he right. had some really interesting commentary. This is a guy people very much listen to. You talk to him, I believe, right. um, for this story. Where does he land? Because he was part of a right. nice expansion himself. So right. how does he look at it academically versus practically? Right. So, so uh, he's on the second point. The first point being that this recession might end. Second point being it never was very strong in the first right. place. And that's what he gets into with his theory of secular stagnation. And that's an idea that was coined by Alvin Hansen back in the 1930s. And he sort of single-handedly has revived it over the past five years. And he's been hammering on. It's become his signature He, Larry theme. Summers. Larry Summers. Former Treasury who, Secretary. Right. He was a Treasury Secretary under Clinton. And then he was the head of the National Economic Council under Obama, the first one. Former president of Harvard. Yeah. Still teaches at Harvard. So he knows a thing or two about this. He does. And uh, his, I, his thought is that we're, we've gotten into a situation where there's a chronic shortfall of demand by businesses and, and households, and the only way to keep the economy growing at a decent pace is by uh, 
fiscal and monetary stimulus, like ex kind of extreme, like more than you kind of really feel comfortable with. Fiscal stimulus being sort of deficit spending and monetary stimulus being very low interest rates. So he's looking, look, he are in a situation now where there's a lot of fiscal stimulus because of the 2017 tax cut. Mm -hmm. Right. And interest rates remain quite low, considering how low the unemployment rate is. Even with that, growth is just kind of okay. Okay, so subpar economic growth, we keep talking about this, low interest rates. At the same time, you mentioned the unemployment rate. Yeah. Low, record lows, right. low by historical standards, right. consistently low. Right. Is the labor market as strong as it appears based on the unemployment rate? Are we not really looking at it as smartly as we should be? Well, I don't think anybody could say the labor market is weak. The question is, is it as strong as a 3.6% rate, which is a 50-year low, uh, would indicate? And uh, among others, uh, David Blanchflower, Dartmouth College, uh, has a new book out where he says, look, uh, the unemployment rate is the wrong measure of slack, slack being the amount of spare capacity. He said, you should look at underemployment mm -hmm. uh, as an indication of that. So that could be people who are working part-time, even mm -hmm. though they'd rather work full-time, that rate is still relatively high. And also uh, people who are out of the labor force entirely. So people look at men aged uh, 21 to 54, this sort of the prime age for working. And only three point something percent are unemployed, but there's more than 10 percent are out of the labor force entirely. So they're not even actively looking for work. And um, that's a sign that maybe the 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 economy has not been strong enough yet to pull them back in. It's pulling some of them back in. And as they get pulled in, they help hold down wages. Right. Because if you have a job, uh, you you might be reluctant to ask for a pay raise if you're worried that they'll get to hire somebody new to come into the labor force. I do wonder, though, with the labor force. I mean, we talked with the CEO of Choice Hotels, talked about, you know, booming his business. But, yeah. you know, a lot of CEOs talk about their inability to find workers. And I do wonder if there's some dislocation that higher skilled workers, we just don't need as many yeah. <laughs> anymore. In some instances, I'm not talking about AI engineers and things yeah. like that. And lower skill, that's where we're finding we but don't have enough workers. What we're seeing is that CEOs are being very clever in hiring. They are not just going to pay higher wages uh, to compete for the same pool. Mm -hmm. They are going after people who uh, maybe have disabilities, older workers, um, people who uh, are, have criminal records. You know, they might have come out of prison, and uh, which is a great thing yeah. for me. Yeah. Because what's better than having a job to get somebody on a better track in life? It's good for them. It's good for society. Right. Um, and, it's, of course, it's good for the bottom lines of these companies because they can get the workers without having to pay top dollar. The one group that gets disadvantaged are the incumbents who otherwise might have gotten a raise, and now they're right. sharing the market with other new people. All right. So wages are clearly one of the data points that the data-dependent Federal Reserve yes. uh, looks at. Help us understand the Fed's role in all this as a central bank right. and its sort of approach to right. monetary policy, especially at a time where I feel like we're sitting here today and there are a lot of questions about what are they going to do next? Right. Well, I just want to go back to 2009. That was a very bad time in America. Uh, it's hard to remember now, but we, we were uh, – it was the worst I remember food, it. Uh, economic <laughs> downturn yeah. since the Great Depression. 
And, you know, the financial markets are crazy. Huge companies, Lehman, uh, goes bankrupt. AIG requires a rescue. Uh, GM, Chrysler, mm-hmm. deeply troubled. I mean, it was bad. But I, funnily enough, the way the, it, these expansions get dated is the expansion is technically begins at the very bottom. The lowest of the point. Si- the very lowest point. So things were bad then, and yet in terms of the cycle, that was the beginning of you know the light at the end of the tunnel because things were getting better from there's, then on. There's one thing in your story. You say that slowness is secret to this cycle's longevity, but that other growth cycles have lasted a long time yeah. without being this slow. Yeah, right. So I, I equate this expansion to Lonesome George. <laughs> The Galapagos Islands tortoise that lived past age 100. And it's sort of, such an obvious metaphor. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, because uh, I was in the Galapagos Islands and I saw lots of uh, some George's cousins. Yeah. And they're rather slow moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they don't put themselves out to get from point A to point B in any kind of hurry. And the, so uh, they don't overheat because it's kind of hot there. Um, but what I'm saying is that, okay, you can overdo the slowness. And this expansion has been slow even by standards of long expansions. And, you know, we had 43% GDP growth in the 91 to 2001 expansion. We have only like 22% cumulative in this expansion. So what's different? Why is this? Yeah, what is different this time around? You know, that's going back to the Fed. You, you, Jason, were asking about that earlier. The Fed and many others are trying to figure out what is different. It's still not fully understood. I'm not going to sit here and say I know. Um, but there is something different. Yeah. Well, or it seems so. Larry Summers would tell you that, it, that it's a secular stagnation mm-hmm. phenomenon. Uh, and the, the Fed would say, look, uh, there's a kink in the you know, Phillips curve. I don't want to get into all the technicalities, but that – there, we, they, we may need, for example, to think about coordinating fiscal and monetary right. policy more. Well, let's talk about that because I feel like we can never talk about economics, especially these days, without talking a little bit about politics. Yeah. This is an expansion that historically now has cut across two administrations, right. uh, one a Democrat, one a Republican. Right. Some of the moves that have been made, candidly, have been made for political reasons. Larry Summers addressed that as well. How does politics play into what may happen next, in your estimation? And You know, I don't see uh, any l- great likelihood of a new round of fiscal stimulus between now and the 2020 election, mm-hmm. unless we really show that we're spiraling into a recession. Although uh, Trump's move to try to protect the farmers by offsetting the tariffs with subsidies is basically a form of fiscal stimulus. That's economics editor Peter Coy on the latest economic streak. If it goes into the month of July, it will be the longest one in U.S. history, at least on record. And I really liked this story because he name checks a couple mm-hmm. brand named economists. It helps us understand that, even gives us a nice little metaphor around a Galapagos turtle. That was a little bit of a flex, but I liked it. <laughs> it was a fascinating story. So Huawei, it's a company the magazine has written about before with good reason. It's China's largest technology company, and it is really kind of ground zero when it comes to the U.S.-China trade war. It's a name that's been in the news in a very prominent way, tweets and beyond. Uh, It's at the center, as you say, of all of this. Demetra Kassanides joins us to talk about a piece in the magazine 
that helps us get a sense of where Huawei may be going from here in the short and the midterm. Well, you know, we have been covering Huawei a lot and what's been going on in this trade war um, from the perspective of President Trump and how he's targeted the company, tried to encourage our allies to also, you know, um, you know, uh, take action against them. And so we've been tracking this. And now Huawei, really, the story that our reporters in Asia have been following and that we have in the magazine this week is about uh, basically their their uh, calling up their troops, right? They're calling on all their developers, all employees, the businesses operating essentially 24-7 to try to react and respond to what's been happening. And what's been happening is that the Commerce Department took an action against the company and put it uh, on a blacklist of companies so that the company cannot buy parts from U.S. companies and U.S. companies equally cannot um, do business with Huawei. Uh, And now it's starting to have a trickle effect. I mean, I think Trump's efforts to get allies in other countries to go along with this is is um is is gaining some traction and so Huawei is looking to basically make up for any of those needs that it was uh that it was that that were fulfilled by US companies internally on its own. It's amassing the troops. I feel like when I read this yeah. story that's what it's doing. It's pulling the troops together as you said yeah. everybody from the company so that they can kind of rid themselves of any dependency certainly on American companies. So, yeah, of course. It's and a war. I mean I it's think a it'll trade be war. they are I mean and they're really approaching it. I mean, this is the, we posited in this sort of warlike way with the troops and all, but that's precisely what's happening. I mean, they have, they have a lot of resources. They have, you know, something like 10,000 developers, um, all all kinds of people. I mean, it's at every level of the company that this Mm. is happening as well. If you're functioning 24 seven, you know, the canteen needs to be working and the building needs to be kept clean and the developers need to be working and (laughs) sort of doing everything they can to develop maybe um, the base sets and the chips and everything else that you know, that they were sourcing from other places, because certainly the American supply chain is is suddenly very dramatically being cut off. Um, and I think there, there are concerns that that's going to happen with others as well. Our colleague Tom McKinsey over in China mm-hmm. had an exclusive interview with Ren Zhangfei. Yes. He is the CEO, the founder of, uh, of Huawei, and he is taking a very bold position, both to his own employees, but also to the world in many ways. Oh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, he's taking it as a sign that, you know, this company being targeted is not because it's a weak, you know, that they are uh, really ahead of the U.S., ahead of most American companies. And this is why President Trump, essentially, this is what uh, he said in the interview, that this is why they're being targeted. So, of course, you know, they're in a very good position, as he sees it, to really push back against all of this. You know, what's fascinating is part of the problem is we're concerned about these Chinese tech companies and their involvement with the Chinese government. And at the same time in this story, we point out that the Chinese government, I think, is helping uh, the division, or is it the chip making division, helping it out so it can wean itself off of American products. So, right. you know, we see that involvement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are so many, yeah. you know, pieces right. to this um, and how exactly it's going to play out, because I think it's moving very quickly. I mean, it was only a month ago or so that one of our stories was about how despite the push by Trump and the desire to see allies take similar actions, at least as of a month, five, six weeks ago, this was a team out of Washington that mm-hmm. did this story. You know, Huawei was really, Huawei has been beefing up its presence in D.C. Mm-hmm. and other countries were more reluctant. Um, but that's shifted very, very quickly. And I think it will continue to shift in other ways. It's not very clear. You know, we can't sort of make a decision about Huawei right now and say, like, let's write it off. Nobody's going <laughs> to deal with them. Obviously, that is not at all the case. 
Well, and one of the things that you guys deal with in this story, we've been talking about it, it feels like, daily on yeah, our yeah. Uh, Bloomberg Business Week show, is this idea that we are also witnessing a real decoupling on the technology side between the U.S. and China. And Huawei seems to be just the emblem of that in many ways. I mean, because yes. we're not talking about small companies that are involved in Huawei. We're talking about some of the biggest tech mm -hmm. companies in the world, many of them U.S.-based. And these decisions are going to have a long-term effect on sure. the products we use, the products we buy, the development of things like 5G. That's really at the core of this, right? Yeah, the fi 5G is a big concern and how this is going to affect 5G because, you know, again, we've talked about this so many times. I mean, it's it's the great, great sort of promise of 5G and what it's going to enable in our world. And yet, you know, is it going to is it going to slow things down? Is it going to make it a little bit less so in the, in the I think, in the short term, not necessarily uh, not the long term, but it will be interesting. I mean, I think what will be interesting for us to do now is to start looking at how this is trickling out and affecting mm -hmm. other companies and where some of those other relationships are going to be affected. I mean, that seems like, you know, what we should be. Sounds like you're, you're going to go down and make an assignment downstairs. To I make. think so. <laughs> well, even in the magazine this week, Cisco's CEO, we did a Business Week Talks and yes. we talked to him about that in terms of the impact on 5G. And, you know, we do keep hearing from these big CEOs that supply chains are going to change. You have to make decisions and some of these things will have a lasting impact. And you do wonder, has the train left the station when it comes to Huawei being involved right. in some of these global supply chains going forward? Well, and, you know, we're also heading into a big year politically in 2020. Right. Um, what are we going to hear from the campaign trail that in some way is going to affect, you know, longer term, what the what the relationship is going to be yeah. like and what the trade relationship is going to be like? Um, so lots of things are in motion. That's Demetra Kessanidis. Great story. Demetra always helping us yes. put everything in context. Yeah, exactly. And Huawei, we've written about it a lot in the magazine, but it's interesting to see what precautionary measures they are taking should this U.S.-China spat continue for even longer or change things dramatically in terms of supply chains. And a reminder of what a fast-moving story this is. So sooner than you think when it comes to cell phones and a massive market opportunity, but a challenging one in Africa. Shira Ovide here with me in New York. So how'd you come upon this story? Well, I've been talking for, to people in the tech industry for years and years about what's colloquially called the next billion users. Although it's really more like three or four billion users, wow. people who are not yet connected to the internet, which is about one half of the population of the globe. And there's been all these initiatives over the years to try to crack that 50% or so of people who aren't online. And I started... Um, talking to people in the last couple of years about this company that's called KaiOS, which is this little startup uh, spinoff of a Chinese electronics company that made this software for very inexpensive devices that are somewhere between, you know, a 1990s cell phone and the smartphones that you and I have in our pockets. Right. And so, I mean, it's fascinating, too, that one of the headlines that's been kicked around on this is the $20 smartphone with a five-day battery, which, you know... Okay, I'm listening, you know, in, yeah. in terms of the that market opportunity. So how does it work? Like, take us inside the phone and then tell us about the opportunity. So the phones that we're talking about, these are sold by companies like Reliance Geo in India, um, Orange, which is a large French mobile phone yeah. company. They're starting to sell these devices in, in some countries in Africa. And it looks, in many cases, like 
the cell phone you might have had in 1997. It's got kind of a basic body of those cell phones. There's no touch screen. Um, and the reason for that is that's a very expensive part. It's typically one of the most expensive components on a smartphone, and it drains a lot of battery. And if you're talking about markets in Africa or rural India, where people might have spotty access to electricity, uh, a touch screen is kind of a little bit of a no-go. Right. And so you start talking about some of these efforts to make the devices as simple as possible, but still have the sophistication of a smartphone. So they connect to the Google Voice Assistant. You can get apps in many cases like WhatsApp and Facebook that have been kind of customized for mm -hmm. these devices. And so you're talking about a device that in some parts of the world you can get for $7, $20, $25 that have, again, some of the brains of a smartphone, but at significantly lower costs, which make it a good on-ramp for the internet because part of it part of the cost comes from as you say in your story just all, like all the stuff that that's in the phone i mean almost four hundred dollars worth of stuff in the latest and greatest iphone you got to get that down so that it's actually affordable for people to to sell like right down to the processor right like a three dollar processor versus something yeah absolutely absolutely right so one of the analysts that i talked to for this piece said these these kind of smartphone slash feature phone devices they probably have maybe fifteen dollars worth of parts and as you mentioned the highest end iphone we're talking about four hundred dollars wow. uh, in estimated parts and a lot of it is just kind of you know, things that maybe you don't need if you're um, just trying to get people onto the Internet. So, again, a lesser, mm -hmm. a less expensive but still capable chipset processor, the brains of a smartphone. It's $50 in a high-end smartphone right. versus maybe $3 in this device. So talk to me about, like, the infrastructure that's out there, because clearly part of this – part of the reason that these folks aren't connected is because – there just isn't the technology in the in the actual physical infrastructure to enable it. Wireless has always been the answer in some ways, yeah. and yet some of the wireless infrastructure doesn't exist maybe the way it should. Yeah, obviously the, the cost of a device is just one element that's one of the barriers holding people back from accessing the internet. Wireless infrastructure is a hugely expensive proposition. If you walk down the street, uh, you know, outside of our headquarters here in New York City, you'll see uh, dozens and dozens of kind of cell phone infrastructure. It might be these giant cell phone towers that mm -hmm. we'll, we see. It might be these kind of uh, smaller base stations that basically connect our cell phones to those larger cell phone towers. And if you're talking about places where um, people have low incomes, where we might be talking about rural areas in places like Africa or India or Indonesia, it's really expensive to get that cell phone infrastructure up and running, uh, particularly if you're thinking about people who don't have high incomes and can't afford to pay the cell phone company, you know, 50 or $100 a month. Right. Uh, we're talking about people who can, you know, afford a fraction of that to pay the cell phone company to, uh, to offset the cost of the infrastructure. Right. So that's certainly one big piece here. And, you know, some of the people that I talked to in Africa, they're talking about tailoring the cell phone infrastructure for these countries where people may have lower incomes and where you have barriers just in terms of land mass. Right. So solar power is a big um a big driver of bringing down the cost of infrastructure and just making smarter software so that you don't need as much expensive hardware. 
Well, and one of the things you deal with in the story, which I thought was really smart, is this idea of, well, should everybody, you know, have wireless? Not do people deserve it, but more the idea of we're seeing, and you've written extensively about this, sort of the the aftermath, the, the symptoms in some ways of all of this uh, smartphone usage. And you come down and basically say, yeah, they should, because here are the things that, that sort of map in a good way to more connectivity. Tell me about that. Yeah, and it's a strange question to ask, right? And I'm not sure had I written this piece two or three years ago that it would right. that we would have even addressed that question. Like, is having the internet really a good thing on balance, given all the downsides that we've seen in terms of election interf- interference or you know false information that spreads like wildfire, social anxiety, social anxiety, it, addiction yeah. to devices. But look, I think the way that the world has developed is the internet is just an essential infrastructure, an essential part of people's 21st century lives, just like electricity and roads. And we expect everyone, certainly in the United States, to have access to electricity and roads. And when they don't, we try to fill that gap. And I think the internet is becoming one of those essential services Mm -hmm. as well, despite all the downsides. Well, and you map it to things like better health and all sorts of elements that are, I think you could argue, are just part of the, to your point, sort of the basic human condition, like, you know, existing as a, as a healthy human being. Yeah, in the and, world. and, you know, there's interesting data from the United Nations that, you know, looks at the direct correlation between internet access, particularly internet access on phones and um, GDP growth. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, if you increase the adoption of mobile internet just a little bit, you get a significant bump. Mm-hmm to GDP. So, you know, this is an economic driver. It makes governments and institutions more accountable if people are connected to the internet. And we've seen recently the governments, some of the governments in um, in African countries try to shut down access to cellular internet networks when there are popular protests right. against politicians. I think that shows the power of the internet in, in the way that, you know, sort of the Arab Spring protests did in, in Africa as well um, a number of years ago. That's Shira Overday. And Jason, her story reminds about half of the world's population still is not online. Well, and it's an interesting reminder, too, that it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to getting access to the Internet. So I have to say, this story really is sooner than you think. I didn't think I'd be flying around in a robo-taxi anytime soon, a taxi drone. But according to our next guest, Stefan Nicola, that could be on the horizon, as it were. He joins me from Berlin. So... Wow, this this is really happening. Tell us, give us the sort of overview here of what we may see in the coming years. What does it actually look like? More than half a dozen companies already have sort of, uh, you know, flying prototypes in the air. Um, we have seen manned and unmanned test flights of air taxis, of robo-taxis across several skies in Las Vegas, in uh, Dubai, and lots of companies from the U.S. to Germany to China are sort of vying for investor money and are are trying to conquer the skies, basically, yeah. Is this sort of a a mass market play here? I mean, are we going to see major cities in the world? Is the vision that we'll have lots of different people moving around a city through these taxi drones, robo-taxis? Well, there there certainly are several cities uh, that are 
explicitly looking at these forms of transportation. Uh, the Middle East is far ahead and, and Asia is relatively far ahead as well because these are cities that are relatively confined. Uh, there's lots of capital there, uh, lots of people, um, lots of traffic. So uh, um, robotaxis are a way to sort of uh, get people away from uh, congested streets. It's a very convenient way of traveling. Um, and yeah, it's uh, also environmentally friendly as uh, nearly all of those robo-taxis that are developed, all of those air-flying taxis that are de being developed are electric. Wow. And so who are the companies that are leading the way here, Stefan? We have several companies leading the way. We have a company in Germany called Volocopter that has uh, developed a drone. It's basically a, a helicopter-looking drone, a drone on steroids, you could say, uh, um, that has already um, had uh, manned and unmanned test flights, even autonomous flights. Uh, over the Dubai skies. They are building a Volo port, is what they're calling it. So an airport, uh, an air hub for robo-taxis in Singapore this year, where they will uh, start uh, test flights, public test flights. And there is a Chinese company called Ehang that's, that's doing pretty well, that has um, uh, um, already flown. Um, there are American companies involved that already have uh, prototypes flying. So, uh, yeah, the, the skies are pretty busy already. Well, in reading your story, I mean, I love some of the names of the companies, too. Astro Elroy, which I believe is a callback to the Jetsons. Kitty Hawk, a callback to the Wright Brothers, you know, the first first in flight, as it were, down in North Carolina. Manned, unmanned, where is this going to go? The cheaper version, obviously, is uh, unmanned, autonomous. Um, and, and that's sort of the ideal way of, of transporting is you board a, a, an air, a flying taxi, you basically tap a few buttons, and then the, the taxi will fly you autonomously to your destination. Um, there are you know, already uh, price estimates for a trip from uh, JFK to Manhattan for about $70. So that, that's certainly affordable, not much more than a taxi. Um, but, you know, uh, scaling up that model and, and flying autonomously um, will be the key here to keep prices low. Talk about the regulatory side of this, if you can, because all of a sudden a bunch of things flying around the sky. I mean, I feel like an old man, like, get off my lawn, get this out of the sky. But, you know, how is that all going to work in the in what sound like they could be very congested skies? What's what's the regulatory uh, overlay here? Yes, that the regulatory overlay is actually the biggest hurdle for these companies. Their technology is doing fine. Uh, you know, they're, they're flying safely, uh, but it's really the regulatory environment that they uh, need to work on. Um, most of these companies are lobbying, uh, you know, air, air traffic regulators to ensure that they get uh, flying licenses, and it will have to to work some something like a, 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 you know it currently works with airplanes. Uh, these will fly much lower, of course. Right. But you know, having having cities and, and states uh, back that kind of technology will take some time. will take some uh, explaining on the side of the companies. How are they able to keep the cost relatively low here? Well, uh, for one, these drones, uh, these uh, air taxis are much cheaper than a regular helicopter. They would cost between, if, you, if you'd sell them, they would cost between two hundred and three hundred thousand. and 300000 mm. So uh, a very expensive car, maybe even less if they're mass-produced. 
and uh, they're, they're not making any no they're making very few uh, very little noise you know a helicopter is quite loud so you can't really have dozens of helicopters in the sky it will be very loud Drones can be uh, uh, less noisy. That's also one advantage. That's Stefan Nicola from Berlin. And I have to say, Carol, reading this story, I thought, oh, that's actually happening right now. There are robo-taxis flying in skies in cities like Dubai. Right. We talk about drones flying in the air, but who knew that they had gotten to this level? So get ready, everyone, for the third wave of computing and one that may prove key in the evolution of artificial intelligence and perhaps even reinventing Intel. I really love the story. Reinventing the entire chip industry yeah. in a lot of ways. This really took me back to my early <laughs> days as a reporter covering Silicon Valley because it gets to the heart of computing. It yep. gets to the heart of so much of what may be coming sooner than you think. Austin Carr, it's a phenomenal story. Tell us about Graphcore. Sure. Uh, Graphcore is a Bristol-based company in the, you know, in the UK. Uh, I tend to write mostly about Silicon Valley companies. So it was really a joy to get away from software startups, app companies, to find this hardware company that's doing something super difficult, which is basically the idea that artificial intelligence or AI has been historically seen as sort of a software problem, big data problem. And th this company said, you know, we don't have the hardware to actually address these types of problems, to, to mine this big data, to think more like humans do, to actually, uh, you know, solve these issues that AI is trying to address. So we need a new chip and talk to us about how this chip needs to think about how we do, how our brain really works. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing is, uh, you know, the two types of chips that came before, CPUs and mm -hmm. GPUs, depending on, you know, uh, uh, central processing units or graphics processing units, uh, basically they thought let's be as precise as possible. They were based historically on the calculator, right? They're just trying to be as accurate as possible. Uh, and that's not the way humans think. You know, when we're going into a roundabout, we have we don't we don't you know, figure out the precise dimension which we have to make that turn. If we're seeing Jason Kelly in person, you know, uh, uh, sorry, Jason Carroll in person, we don't analyze every pixel of your face. We need a more uh, a processor that thinks more like a human that sort of plucks different nodes uh, in the sphere uh, that can process amorphous data structures to sort of come to a more precise point from a very imprecise place. So before we get to, to how it works, I want to take you back to something you said at the very start, because it ties in with one of the biggest themes of this issue and Ashley Vance's mm -hmm. terrific piece yep. talking about Silicon Valley yeah. and sort of its very roots because this gets to the core, pun intended, of Silicon Valley and, and innovation in a lot of ways. The the semiconductor is sort of the fundamental piece of this entire uh, tech revolution. So they really have to go back and, and so, sort of rethink what we're doing. So how do you do that? How do you start with a blank sheet of paper in some ways? That's exactly what they had to do, which is very unusual in chip design. More, It's more incremental. You know, uh, the whole chip industry is based on Moore's law, the basic idea that at roughly every two years, the number of transistors on the chip, that's sort of the small little components that make it function, will double. Um, the issue is as they keep doubling and doubling, these processors are getting super, super hot. Uh, about right. 10 years ago, they just started getting really hot and very very power hungry. So when this company just starting with the blank sheet of paper, they need to say, you know what, how do we design this chip? So it's not just imprecisely calculating things to save more energy, um, but it's also doing so in a very efficient way that's allowed, that's not too hot. So they had to th rethink every part of the chip architecture uh, from the ground up. Uh, one of the big things they actually did, uh, and I'm happy to talk more. I mean, we're yeah. going to get really no, technical no, we, in the I, next 10 minutes. I hope this. you don't mind. No, okay. no, 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 go All ahead. Right. Go ahead. Um, it, it's just that chips uh, historically have been designed separated from memory. 
memory. So in other words, the processing that a chip does, every time it wants to get new data, it has to go back and forth to a different component of hardware, an external memory. That's super power hungry. It costs a lot. And not productive. Not productive at all. And so this company realized, you know what, let's combine the, the basically the chip's logic with its memory so we can do the processing and thinking and, and storing at the same moment. Uh, and so they broke it up in the basically 1,200 processor cores. Again, I apologize. This no, is getting no, really no, technical, but it's fun. Um, and so all these processors act uh, separately, independently, doing these small mini data problems. And then at the exact moment when it's most efficient, they sync up and share learnings together. It's kind you of have like a, the drone story that right. you, know, you, you send out a teamwork of drones. We just did a drone story, right? And they're all gathering and sharing information. And as a result, they're mapping the sea in this particular story. But totally. you're having all these guys kind of accumulate information and then kind of work together, think together. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the simplest way I can think about it is um, when I talk about imprecise calculations, imagine if your brain, every time you thought about the concept pi, you calculated pi to the 70th <laughs> thousands decimal point. And again, right. this is very oversimplifying the issue. But how much energy, say, how much brain power could you save if you every time you did that pi calculation, you just did 3.14? Right. You're saving a lot of energy. So in other words, every time these small MIDI processors are processing things, they're doing it very imprecisely because they realize, you know what, again, we don't need to study every pixel of the human face to recognize it. We can do it more imprecisely, do it more vaguely. Well, we like we look at one another right right away. I know it's Jason. I look at you. I know it's yep. Austin right away. And how do you replicate that? And that, that's the difficult thing. They're, they're trying to sort of uh, approximate the synapses and nodes um, and, and uh, the way that the human brain thinks in a hardware processor. So tell us a little bit, because as you say, this is a company that's based over in, in Bristol in the UK, far from Silicon Valley, far from Boston. Mm-hmm. How have they created this company in, in sort of a different way? Because I got the sense from your story that they had some interesting people that they were able to sort of glom onto, maybe some cast-offs from, from other totally. companies. It sort of is this little rogue nation uh, that they're creating. Culturally, what is that like? Yeah, I mean, uh, what, what was interesting about getting out of the Silicon Valley bubble uh, and going to the UK is you just forget this whole world of really brilliant people that are from Oxford and Cambridge that have really done a lot in the chip industry, especially. I mean, if you think about ARM Holdings, uh, ARM is basically the foundational mm-hmm. architecture in whatever, 90 plus percent of all chips in the world. Yeah. Um, just a huge huge uh, behemoth that recently sold to SoftBank for $31 billion. Um, A lot of these folks have worked in that industry for decades. The two founders of this company, Nigel Toon and Simon Knowles, they have uh, uh, decades of of experience working in AI, uh, in microprocessors. So they, prior to this, had actually sold a big uh, mobile chip company to NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. And uh, NVIDIA ultimately actually shut that company down. So the way they described it is getting the band back together. So talk to, since we're talking about NVIDIA, talk to about them for a second, because they are a behemoth in this. The GPU sort of king, Mm -hmm. right, NVIDIA, is their big competition, uh, Absolutely. For these guys, right? Yeah. I mean, NVIDIA, let's, I mean, this is a really fun story about a small upstart that's taking on these massive giants in the semiconductor industry. But uh, the analyst that we talked to just reminded us, look, NVIDIA is still the, the uh, you know, the incumbent in the space. They, they're dominant when it comes to their GPUs. And essentially what they're trying to do is also trend toward more imprecise computing, yeah. more energy efficiency. So they're trying to get their GPUs to act more like 
what Graphcore calls an IPU, intelligence processing unit. But uh, they still want to use the GPU architecture. And essentially, we've got to get to this if we really are going to have self-driving cars, correct? In yeah. order for it to work really, really well, you've got to have this level, these IPUs, this level of chips, chips that can think like a brain and kind of process everything in order for it to work Exactly. I mean, it's not just self-driving cars. It's it's voice recognition. Because um, we have this stuff. Correct, but, yeah. But in order for it to really work the way it needs to in our society, right? Yeah, but we also have this stuff processing really simple neural ne- networks and, yeah. and um, data structures. I mean, you think about it, that, that's one of the big limiters of how smart these things are, how much data we can feed them, how much data we can train them with. So the, the more powerful these these chips become, then you start to think, oh, what different training models? We, we don't have right. to, fe- if you think about it, fundamentally, we've just been feeding images of a cat to these computers and saying, this is a cat, this right. is a cat. And then they learn. Telling Could machines we do what, that more what to do, right? Exactly. And what they are. Yeah. And those are just millions of images. Imagine if we did that with billions or trillions of images. So how yeah. much smarter could these uh, computers get? And do you start to get to the point where they're smarter or can distinguish a cat more than a human could? So what's the next step here? I mean, what's the next proof point? You know, you mm-hmm. have some uh, nice anecdotes in the story about recognizing a cat, not just saying that's a cat, but this is the type of cat it is. And, and these uh, chips really being able to learn. What's the next proof point? Yeah, I, I think the big philosophical debate in the semiconductor industry right now is when you start to get to the point, uh, it's called the Turing test uh, based on Alan Turing. But what is the distinction between the way a computer thinks and the way a human thinks? Yeah. And right now, you know, a computer, we're essentially telling it what to do step by step. But can you get to the point where it starts learning on its own, where it can not just be taught, let's say, uh, the rules of chess and how to beat chess, but just figure out chess on its own and understand that concept at a more fundamental like level. Like a human. Like a human. Right. You've got to- <laughs> and it might be very mechanical, but at the same time, if, if they can start beating a human in chess or recognizing a cat or drive better than a human, I mean, what's to say that's not human-like? That's Austin Carr, and I love this story. It really is my must-read of the week. Just talks about the next generation of processing and the capabilities that'll come along with it. Super smart story. All right, there was another piece of news out this week. Carol Peloton, a brand well-known to us, has filed confidentially for an initial public offering. And reports leading up to this, of course, have said the company could be valued at more than $8 billion. Well, back in May... You and I were at Peloton's Mm -hmm. homecoming event. Thousands of people descending on New York City. We sat down with the company's founder and CEO, John Foley. You asked him about the financial stability of the home exercise market. Give us an idea in terms of financials, top and bottom line, line growth, subscriber growth, and then the IPO. Yeah, so I think I've been quoted saying we're, uh, we've done seven or eight hundred million top line in the last year, um, and there's we're growing very quickly. Um, we're Double ex- digit? Sure. Um, <laughs> if, not, if not more. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a high growth company. Yeah. We hope to keep it a high growth company. Um, and we do have you know, big plans, and uh, we think we're kind of in the first inning. Um, I will tell you, we have, uh, I think, close to 500,000 subscribers now. We think we could have, you know, 100 million subscribers. So we are very, very early in our days. Do you think we're going to see some consolidation in this space? Are you an M&A player at this point? We recently hired a pretty big M&A head. um, So we're going to continue organically growing and be opportunistic if there are things that make sense for us. So, yeah, we're, 
we're going to be smart. That was Peloton CEO and founder John Foley speaking with us at Peloton Homecoming back in May. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast with the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.